The text for this sermon is in the book of 1 Peter, the epistle of Peter, chapter 5. Beginning at verse 8, we'll uh, just really two verses, verses 8 and 9. The title of the message is His Majesty the, the Devil. It's on the marquee, and uh, the other night, late in the evening, about 11 o'clock, I got this call, and this lady uh, on the, in the, talking on the phone said, somebody has um, put a sign up in front of the church exalting the devil. And uh, my wife asked, you know, was it the marquee sign? And she said, yes. And she said, well, that's the title of the preacher's sermon, my husband's sermon. And uh, she was quite confused that um, we would have um, the title, His Majesty the Devil, assuming that that meant that we were exalting him. But Jesus called him the prince of the power of the air, and Paul called him the God of this world. And um, to preach a sermon on, on the devil is to invite his assault upon this service. And so you join me as we pray that God would bind the strong man and honor his word. The eighth verse reads like this. Be sober of spirit, on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith. The, the article in the King James, the definite article in the Greek, is a personal thing, like your faith knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. These words come on the heels of the admonition, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And they may be a warning to take nothing for granted, because Perhaps when we have been admonished to cast our cares upon Him, to place everything upon God, we might assume that all of our worries are over. And Peter doesn't want us to get that assumption. When you read the epistles of Peter, you recognize immediately that he draws from his personal experience. And he remembers that it is often after some great spiritual victory, some great deliverance or spiritual relief that Satan comes with his greatest assault. In the 16th chapter of Matthew, Peter is the only one with spiritual perception who says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus is so overwhelmed by that statement that he rejoices in it and he says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon. This is not a human discovery. This is a divine disclosure. And upon your rock of faith, I'll build my church. And in the next breath, Jesus is saying to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you savor us. You dwell on the things of man and not on the things of God. In one moment, he was on the mountaintop of spiritual perception. 
in the next moment he was in the valley being used as an instrument of Satan to keep Jesus from the cross. In the 22nd chapter of Luke, Simon Peter is boasting in the upper room that everybody might deny Jesus but not him. He's saying, I'll go to death for you. I'll never deny you. Others might, but not me. And it wasn't but just a matter of hours, as you know, that he was denying his Lord even with cursing. You and I have known that experience. We've just had some great spiritual mountaintop and experience, and we just knew that it's going to be easy from now on, only to find that Satan brings his tremendous assault upon our lives to bring us down. Now, theologians may quibble about whether Satan is a personality or an influence, but to Simon Peter, he was a real personality on whom, against whom we must constantly be on guard. W.T. Connor, perhaps the greatest theologian or one of the greatest theologians that Southern Baptist has ever produced, said, I wouldn't have to have the, de the Bible to believe in the reality of a personal devil there's so many little devils running around on the streets that I know he'd have to have, they'd have to have a daddy somewhere. Martin Luther believed in the reality of a personal devil. He said, I often debated with him as I interpreted the Old Testament from Hebrew to German. And one day Satan was so real and Luther got so mad that he threw an ink bottle at him. Robert Louis Stevenson once said, you remember that Caledonian railroad station in Edinburgh? One cold winter morning, I met the devil there. And he doesn't tell us what happened, but you and I can imagine, for we've all had those lonely encounters with that awful presence. Miller Jenkins, the great pastor of Abilene's First Baptist Church, wrote about his encounter with the devil. He wrote, and I woke up greatly frightened. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't a nightmare. I broke out in cold perspiration. I called out, Jesus, Jesus. And I was aware of the exit of, the exit of that evil presence. Jesus believed in a personal devil. He struggled with him in a hand-to-hand -hand encounter in his wilderness temptation. And he taught his disciples, always pray that you be delivered from the evil one. And he taught us that death was the supreme encounter with Satan. In this text this morning, Peter deals with the matter of Satan, the devil, and he shows us four things about him, and then he tells us four things that we can do about him. A preacher got up one morning and said, I've got a sermon, three points about the devil. The first point is, what about the devil? The second point is, what the devil is about. And the third is, what the devil to do about the devil. Now, I've come this morning to tell you about him and what to do about him. First of all, the text says that he is an aspiring adversary. Verse 8, your adversary, the devil... Now those terms are not to be separated. It is not your adversary, one, the devil, two. It is your adversary, the devil, and they go together. The first term tells us what he does, and the second term tells us how he does it. 
There are at least three places in the New Testament where the word adversary is used to describe the activity or the action of the devil. The first is in the 12th chapter of the book of Luke. And here that word adversary is used in terms of an opponent, a legal term, meaning a foe, an opponent who drags one into the court of law. And the emphasis is on the fact that he is your foe, your opponent. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And then he goes on to use the terminology of dressing up with the armor. He used the term wrestle in order to show the intimacy of the conflict. It's just you and Satan in an intimate conflict. It's the picture of two people grappling with one another, struggling and warring with one another to the death. I watched television not long ago and because there's no baseball games on. They had some college wrestling. I never really stopped to watch that. And as I watched that, I was intrigued by the fact that all you could see were just two men. There was an official there, but you hardly ever saw him. You didn't see the people in the grandstands, the spectators. You didn't see the team. All you saw were two fellows out there struggling and grappling and, and wrestling with one another to pin one another on the campus. It's on the, on the canvas. It's just you and Satan in the intimacy of the conflict. He is your opponent. The second time that word adversary is used, it's in the book of Zechariah. And it says that Joshua, the priest, went into the throne of God and the adversary, the resister, was there to resist him. So that he resists us. You have felt that, haven't you? That invisible, almost insurmountable presence. You started come out these pews and down this aisle before to make that commitment God has led you to make. And there's just something there holding you back. You've gone into prayer. You really meant to. You were going to go into your, on your knees to pray. You were resisted before you went to the prayer room. And when you got on your knees to pray, there was that irresistible presence resisting your prayer. You started out to witness. You really meant to. There were a thousand and one things that came to resist, to get in the way, obstacles and barriers to overcome. That's His work. The third time the word adversary is used is in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And this is what it says. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. And the word is accuse. Someone says that he accuses in three ways. First, he accuses God to man. He did that in the beginning. He said to Adam and Eve, He's not your friend, he's your enemy. He's not for you, he's against you. He doesn't want you to have the knowledge of truth. And sometimes he comes to me and he whispers in my ear, God is not for you. Look at all the problems you're facing in life. Look at the prayers that have gone unanswered. Heaven is in deaf silence. God is not real. 
someone said, that he accuses man to God. He's always doing that, hailing us before God and saying, look at this man who claims to be a Christian. What kind of a Christian is he who seeks to serve you with that in his life? And some say that he accuses man to man, and that's where disunity and rebellion and dissension develop in relationships. And the fact is, he does this day and night. He never takes a coffee break. He never takes a day off. He never goes on vacation. An old Scots woman had always something positive to say about everything. Someone said to her one time, you would say something good about the devil. And she said, well, at least he's a very industrious fellow, isn't he? He never stops. And if what he does is an adversary, then what he, how he does it is in the word devil. It's diabolos in the Greek, and it's a combination of two English words. It means to throw through or to hurl through. And it's the picture of the catapult. They put those, put those great stones on those catapults, and they'd heave them back and hurl them against the fortress. I want to declare to you, there is no man-made defense against his assault. He comes with such persistency and such intensity and such continuity that there is no defense against him. He is an aspiring adversary. Secondly, he is an angry animal. The scripture says that he is as, now it doesn't say he is a roaring lion, it says he is as a roaring lion. And there are two ideas in that statement. One is that the lion roars only when it's hungry. When you hear the lion in the forest, they say it's because their hunger is not satisfied. And they roar until that hunger is satisfied. The second idea that's involved in that statement is that his purpose is to strike terror or fear in our hearts. Fear is not of God. When I read this, I think of the first statement God made to Cain, the first murderer. He said, sin, like an angry animal, crouches at the door waiting to spring in. And I'll not forget the statement Jesus made about the angry wolf coming to the sheepfold that had been entrusted to the hireling shepherd causing him to fear and flee, leaving the sheepfold, leaving the sheep to be devoured and scattered. He is a roaring as a roaring lion. You felt that fear in your heart, haven't you? You've wanted to witness and the lion has roared and fear has come. You've wanted to come to that place of the faith rest life and trustful living You've wanted to place everything at God's disposal, even your finances, and you really meant to, and the lion roars and fear comes. He is an angry animal. Third, he is an active assassin. He walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The first chapter of Job, verse 6 says, And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also among them. And God said to Satan, Whence comest thou? And he said, From going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. Now Satan is not like God. He is not omnipresent. 
But he is a spirit, so he's not bound by natural law. It is true that he has access to everyone in this room today, both directly and indirectly. And it is true that there is not one of us who is beyond his reach. He is an active assassin. Fourth, he has an aggressive appetite. Seeking, he said, whom he may devour. Now the word seek there means, literally, it's, the Greek word is best translated plotting. Do you know what the devil's doing this morning? He's plotting your downfall. Screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, the great religious intellectual, has him pictured standing somewhere in, in, in hell in that diabolical place with all of his messengers, and they have blueprints with everybody's name on them and plans of strategy, and he plans our downfall. And the word devour there is a word that you've seen illustrated at your breakfast table or lunch table if you have teenagers. I mean, it means to gulp down with one bite, it, not even chew. You've seen that happen. You know, you look and there's a plate of food and you look back and it's gone and there's not even been a bite. Just go, whoop, gulp. It's like that. If you've got a teenager, you know what I'm talking about. Listen, he plots out downfall and he moves with such swiftness. It's all over before we know it. I can remember times when I have fallen into sin, I have yielded to temptation. After it was over, I thought to myself, how did that happen? It happened before I even was aware of it happening. And so with fiendish glee, he stands while Abraham lies. And there's a smirk on his face as he watches Noah drunk in his nakedness. And he rejoices as he watches David commit adultery. And he's there with hellish gladness as Peter denies his Lord. For his purpose in this life is to destroy you and me. Because in destroying you and me, in devouring us, he gets back at the God who cast him out. Now I wouldn't leave you there without showing contrast. Watch this. If the devil is our adversary, Jesus is our advocate. First John said, These things I have written unto you, that you sin not. But if any man should sin, we have Jesus Christ the righteous, our advocate. Now it's amazing when you look at the contrast. If Satan is an adversary, an opponent in a court of law, Jesus is an advocate in the court of law. He's our heavenly lawyer. And he's a strange kind of lawyer. Well, you see, most lawyers stand beside their client and plead their innocence. Jesus stands beside us and pleads our guilt. And he says to the Father, This client of mine is guilty, but on the basis of these nail prints in my hands and this wound in my side, I pray his forgiveness so that my salvation and my sanctification are secured by his advocacy, his intercession. He's our adversary. Jesus is our advocate. If Satan is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 
Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5, 5. And I spent all week trying to find the real meaning of that statement. It just captured me when it called Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. The only thing I can find, perhaps is the most glorious thing, is this. That he is absolute king of kings and lord of lords. He that is within you is greater than he that's in the world. And if Satan is walking up and down the earth seeking whom he may devour, our God is walking up and down the earth seeking whom he may bless. First Chronicles, Second Chronicles 16, 9 says, And the eyes of the Lord run to and fro in the earth to make himself strong to those whose hearts are perfect toward him. Now Satan wants to bring you down and God wants to bring you up. Satan desires and delights in seeing you fall. God delights in seeing you victorious. And so the disciples came back to Jesus and they, after they'd been sent out on that missionary journey and they said to him with great joy, we've seen Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And every time the gospel's preached and men are saved, Satan falls like lightning from heaven. For God runs to and fro up and down the earth, seeking whom he may bless. Now what can we do about him, this real, not imaginary being? There are four things that are in our text. Number one, he says, be sober. Now that doesn't mean to get out and sober up because you've been drinking. doesn't mean that at all. The word in the Greek means to gird up your mind like a, like a person wearing long clothes at that time when, they were, when it was needful for them to be swift and, 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 and have good movement. They would gird their garments around them so that their garment would not impede their progress. Girding up the mind means to set your mind on that which is of God. For Satan is after the minds of men. I was flying out to West Texas about six months ago and I happened to get a seat on the plane by Dick Baker. You've heard him sing here in the church and you know him and love him. We were flying out there and we were talking about uh, the revival I was going to preach and we were talking about, I told him I was going to preach a sermon on, on the devil while I was out there and he told me about an experience that happened in his wife's classroom in, one of the, in an exclusive section of Dallas, Texas. She said one day she asked the kids to write a little essay on what they would do if they had the courage to do it. And she said one of the young fellows who was the smartest, the brightest kid in the class wrote this essay. I would do, what I would do if I had the courage to do it is kill myself. And Dick Baker said that his wife had been sharing with him in the last few weeks and months how she felt, how she sensed in that classroom of advanced students in the exclusive section of Dallas how she was able to see and witness and experience the assault of Satan on the minds of those young people. Gird up your mind. Begin to focus your mind on that which is of God. Set your mind, your affection on these things. Second, 
be vigilant. It's the picture of a wild animal, a gazelle, who is drinking water, lapping water at the, at the stream, but all the time every ounce of his energy and being is attuned to the danger around him. Every pore is open to every sound. His ears are alert and his eyes are watchful and he's lapping at the stream, but he's aware all the time of the enemy. When I came yesterday to my time of prayer, realizing, thinking for the first 30 minutes in the prayer room of what I was going to speak today, I was aware of the fact that to try to preach this sermon was to be a difficult thing. As I walked through this church, as I do every Saturday night, and prayed for the strong man to be bound, I was aware of his presence. Then he says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him. It's time you and I begin to stand against him. Young people, resist him. Now it's not resist temptation, it's resist the devil. And it occurred to me recently in this statement, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We're always talking about the fact that he never leaves us alone. We're always talking about he's constantly tempting us. Listen, folks, that may be the, an indictment, for it says that if we resist him, he flees. You draw near to God, he draws near to you. You draw near to Satan, and he draws near to you. Resist him, and he flees. I've shared this. I must do it again. I was in the prayer room in North Fort Worth, Baptist Church prayer room early in the morning. I had early time there, 7 o'clock, the phone rang. My wife said, call the name of a lady in our church. Did she get a hold of you? And I said, no, she hasn't called me. She said, well, I was just checking to see if you'd gotten there. I told her you were in the prayer room. She'll be calling you. I hung up. The phone rang immediately. The lady said, Pastor, I've got to talk to you. I need to see you now. I need to come immediately. I said, you come when I hung up that phone, not knowing the problem, and yet, folks, not being dramatic, not at all, but just lay, telling you the truth, the hair on my head stood on end, and the chill bumps came up and down on my flesh, and I knew that something devastating and diabolical and terrible was happening in her life. When she came into my office, she had a package of letters Letters that her daughter and another girl had written to one another. They were involved in, in homosexual experiences. I've never read, I have never read such vile filth in all my life as I found in those letters. They told about things they were doing, like drinking one another's urine. It was unbelievable. It was right out of a chapter in Satan's magazine. It was terrible. I told her, I said, I don't know what to do about this, but I think you need to get her some help, professional help. And I referred her to a Christian psychiatrist I know in Dallas, and the journey began. As she would come into my office, the mother, to meet with me from time to time, she would tell me about superhuman things that were happening in her house. That daughter would be in her room. They confined her, limited her to her room. Not a telephone call, nothing. She'd just come out of that room running 
and she'd go to a certain park. They followed her. She'd go to a certain park in the city. That other girl would be there. They were just drawn together. It was superhuman. They'd meet in unarranged meetings. They just both knew where the other would be. And as they, she began to describe the conferences that woman, that girl had with her psychiatrist and all that was going on, it was hair-raising. I don't have a time in the week to tell you about it, but I met the two girls. I asked them to come into my office and visit. And when they came in and sat down, the daughter of this woman was pretty humble and pretty open. But the other girl had a look on her face of evil, a look on her face of defiant godlessness, the likes of which I have not seen often. And as I talked with them and shared with them, they began to tell me how they were drawn to one another, how they had no real intimate friendships, how they'd found relationship with one another that was indescribable and unbelievable. And I told them, oh, young ladies, there is help for you, but that help comes from God. And in order to break that break that's there, in order to overcome, we must begin to resist Him. Resist Him. And there's one last su suggestion that's in our text. I just want to read it again because I don't want you to miss it. It's there hidden and you won't discover it unless you see it now. Look knowing that the same experiences are, of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now what does that say to you? What does it say? You know what it says to me? It says in order for us to be overcomers against Him, we need each other. We're all going through this encounter, these struggles, and we need each other. We need the strength of one another. We need the encouragement of one another. We need the bondship of one another. We need to share with one another, encouraging one another. And I must lay it out, out my heart to you this morning. If there is any disunity, if there is any breaking or rending of relationships, if there's anything that keeps us from being one, we need to rid ourselves of that. And we must, we must join our hands together because this is a battle against each of us and against us all corporately. For I promise you that we'll not win this battle alone. Even though the encounter is a life and death struggle individually and intimately. We can help each other and assist each other. And I'm going to tell you, this church is in trouble unless we unite ourselves together. And it bothers me to the core of my being that we have class after class after class with teachers missing, gone, quit, people who need to be taught and no teachers, people sitting in classrooms that need to be teaching. If there ever was a time 
when the church needs to unite and join together in this common encounter and common struggle. It's now in this day. We're in this thing together to live or die. And Satan's greatest assault of defeat is to scatter us and to fragmentize us and to, and to cause disunity, is to break down the bond of fellowship. For if we have one thing that binds us, it's the common conflict and the common foe. And so all of the criticism and the petty backbiting must go. And all of the fault-finding that might exist must go, and in its place must come love and encouragement and oneness and fellowship. For he says, resist the devil in your faith, not your mother's faith, not your teacher's faith, not your neighbor's faith, in your faith, that is, in the faith that trusts in the exercise of the power of God. Little girl said to her mother, Mother, is Satan bigger than I am? Yes, he is, darling. He's bigger than you. Is Satan bigger than Daddy? Yes, he is, bigger than Daddy. Is Satan bigger than God? Oh, no, honey. He's not bigger than God. Resist the devil in the exercise of a faith that trusts in the power of God. Do you have that kind of faith? Do you have that kind of faith? Do you have the kind of fellowship that would join together in the common encounter, the common struggle? We have the same enemy. Do you understand that he's walking to and fro up and down these aisles and he finds every unlatched door to enter. Now I'm going to pray in a moment that in this invitation he will be bound and that God will have his way. And I'm going to ask you to come this morning giving your life to Jesus Christ. Come trusting him as your Savior. Some of you have made that kind of decision privately. You'll need to come publicly and for baptism maybe at camp, maybe at Falls Creek, maybe in your own home. Maybe you're just sitting there this morning and you've known what I've talked about when I talk about the fact that I want to come, but there is that resistance. Break down that barrier. Step out and come. Savior's waiting. He'll meet you. You may need to come this morning to rededicate your life to Him, to Christ. Because of the evil power that's in the world, you're going to flee to the Savior to his help. You may need to come to unite yourself here in this church and serve God here, joining together because we're struggling against a common foe and you need the fellowship and the encouragement of the church. Join me in prayer. Father, we want that the Lord Jesus would get victory from this moment on. The most important time now, Father, is the time of decision. And I pray that, God, that you'll bind.